welcome to this bonus episode of For a Quiet Moment. I'm your host, Nico Callaghan. Today, I'm bringing you a piece written by Lucy Callaghan. Yes, a relative of mine. And it's titled, Why or Why Not Music? The audio for this episode was recorded while observing social distancing, and rather than be prohibited from engaging with others, I wanted to use this as an opportunity to invite several friends and colleagues to contribute to the reading of this work. There are numerous quotes peppered throughout the piece, and those who have helped me will pop up at certain points to assist in the reading. And to fit with the theme of the piece, the track playing in the background is a piece titled I Was That Book by Melbourne-based musician Other Joe, off their album Alien Haze. It was released last year via the label JPEG Artifacts. Today's episode will begin in a moment. I hope you enjoy listening to For a Quiet Moment and Lucy Callaghan reading Why or Why Not Music. There's music playing each morning while Irish author Niall Williams writes in his County Clare cottage. It might be Mozart's Requiem, Bach's Cello Suites, Van Morrison or The Gloaming. Music sounds out the real world. It screens it off and creates a musicscape in which to work. This oral landscape helps Williams find what he calls the place of composition. He's not sure how it happens, but it works. Williams is writing his 10th novel, has written plays and screenplays, and co-written four books with his wife, Christine Breen. His first novel, The Poetic and Lyrical Four Letters of Love, was an international bestseller, and his ninth, History of the Rain, was long-listed for the Man Booker Prize in 2014. In contrast, Julian Barnes, award-winning novelist, translator and author of many short stories and essays, never ever has music playing while he's writing. Prose has its own music, rhythm, pulse, and real music cuts across it disastrously. Barnes briefly tried listening to a Shostakovich prelude, or fugue, each day before working on his novel about the composer's life and music, The Noise of Time. He thought it might set him up for writing about Shostakovich, but that didn't work. It gave me no help with the writing, and I abandoned the experiment after three sessions. I wrote to Niall Williams and Julian Barnes, along with other fiction and non-fiction writers, including Hannah Kent and Robert Desai, because I was curious about whether they have music playing when they're writing. I'm inclined to have minimalist ambient music on in the background while I write. Something by Bing and Ruth, Max Richter, or Johan Johansson plays so softly that I don't so much listen to it. It's let the gentle waves seep into my mind. It shuts out the outside world and leads me inward, allows me to focus on what I'm writing. How does this work? Is a subtle music infusion a pathway to a writer's imagination or inspiration? If so, what types of music lend themselves to this? Why does listening to music suit some writers and not others?
What the authors who replied told me reflected Oliver Sacks' view in The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, that we all have our own distinctive mental worlds, our own inner journeyings and landscapes. When Hannah Kent wanted to inhabit the bleak fate of Icelander Agnes Magnus Dottir in her first novel, Burial Rites, Laura Marling's music helped take her there. Certain songs gave me the emotional cues I needed to very quickly access the world and narratives of my characters and forget myself and my modern world. It expedited that process of engagement, kept me steering in the right direction. Kent identifies a sensibility, an emotional atmosphere in Marling's work that took her straight into the mind of Agnes Magnus Dottier. This passage into a character's interior with the help of music is a mysterious process. The music Kent hears creates a different world in her mind. She's able to go deeper than imagining Agnes's looks or gestures and is transported into her emotional core. Kent sees Agnes, hears her, is her. Burial Rites and The Good People both had their own playlist, Kent tells me. Icelandic choral work or tracks by Sigur Ross, Nicky Lee or Marling played on repeat for burial rites. Music by Agnes Obel, The Chieftains, The Moulets or Riona Connolly accompanied The Good People. Niall Williams echoes this. The CD will often play on repeat and I never listen to anything new while writing. Familiarity is important. Kent's and Williams' comments made me wonder if music functions for them as some kind of moderating persuader that frees the mind to wander unhindered into creative territory. If, through some form of neural collaboration, familiar, iterative sound sequences encourage, even stimulate, the music of language. In This Is Your Brain on Music, Daniel Leverton describes what happens when we hear music as an exquisite orchestration of brain regions. He explains how the oldest and the newest parts of the brain connect through a precisely choreographed neurochemical release and uptake between logical prediction systems and emotional reward systems. British science writer Philip Ball describes this process as a conversation between the brain's hemispheres. No other stimulus comparably engages all aspects of our mental apparatus and compels them to speak with one another, left to right hemisphere, logic to emotion. Music is a gymnasium for the mind, he says, a whole brain phenomenon where intellect and feeling coalesce, fueled by music as food of the mind as well as of the heart. But does this mean that writing to background music modifies how a writer attends to either the music or the writing? According to Leverton, music and language share some common neural resources, but have independent pathways as well. And Ball says our brains have accepted the need for unprecedented collaboration between departments when responding to music. Perhaps this means that those who do write to music 
experience a particular kind of neural concurrence that allows simultaneous processing of music and language. A confluence that allows music and writing pathways to merge more frequently, more easily. Both Levitin and Ball write about music stimulating the brain in ways that can assist with other cognitive tasks. Philip Ball's own practice demonstrates it. While he generally doesn't have background music playing while he's writing, there are times when it's useful. When doing routine tasks like preparing an index or checking proofs, I'll sometimes use music. Then, Bach fugues, string quartets by Beethoven, Mozart or Haydn, or Ravel's chamber music may gently massage my mind to keep it alert. Music, therefore, functions as an ultralight metronome rather than lullaby. To eliminate background noise and create a focused internal environment, you'll also listen to that same music through headphones while reading or doing research at the British Library. Art historian, fiction writer and author of Nest, The Art of Birds, Janine Burke lets the tempo of her work determine whether she listens to music while writing. I might be writing very fast and intensively, and I'll put on some music to relax my mind a little, to take the edge off the intensity. Burke pairs that fast-paced writing with African music in a way that suggests the pace of the music encourages her writing to flow in a similar rhythm. Burke prefers polyrhythmic beats from Mali. That music really speaks to the soul and the senses. The music provides Burke with joyous company, inspirational support and deep pleasure while she's writing. At other times though, when she's editing her work, Burke doesn't want the intrusion of music, of any other rhythm, and she writes in silence. Although Australian writer and social researcher Hugh McKay plays the piano and sings in a choir, he never has music playing while he writes. I find music as background to writing is simply a distraction. I need to be totally engrossed in the work. For McKay, music is helpful when working on a new writing project, to take a break from the writing, but perhaps also to distill ideas, and he'll play the piano or listen to music. For Australian author Robert Desai, Music is never the background to anything. He writes in silence too. I only listen to music in order to listen to music. Music should be listened to for its own sake. Sometimes though, ideas he can use creatively come to him while listening to music at a concert, or just before lights out. But mostly as colours or shapes, he says. And award-winning Australian writer Alex Miller also never listens to music while writing. For me, they are two very different things, listening and writing. Each requires a very different quality of attention. Writing takes all my attention. But music is an essential part of Miller's day and his sense of well-being. And there are times when he's listening to music and thinks of something to do with his writing. Then he finds a connection that I've overlooked, the thought brought forward in reverie. Is it going too far to think that the conversation going on in his brain 
continues while he's not paying attention and makes a connection for him, that the left and right hemisphere bring the music and his writing together in their own exquisite orchestration. Melbourne writer and musician Sean Pryor has experienced something like this. While Pryor prefers not to listen to music while she writes, writing and music have converged unexpectedly. Pryor wrote a chapter of her first book, Shy, a memoir, in a notebook while listening to a clarinet recital. She'd played the music herself, a Brahms sonata, as a young musician. I wrote about the memories and emotions that music and composer inspired in me and the words flowed out with unusual clarity. Then, what may be the first chapter of her next book, formed during a Baroque mandolin concert. The music allowed some kind of space and clarity for thinking about the stories I want to tell in the second book. Edward Said has an elegant interpretation of how music can function like this in his essay, Melody, Solitude and Affirmation. One lives with music, both practically and knowledgeably over time. One hears a composer's work in more ways than those provided within the individual work's discrete boundaries. Into this hearing of a composer, there enter many components, internalised by the musician or the listeners. Until recently, Zoe Morrison, author of Music and Freedom, never had music playing while she wrote. As a musician, Morrison can't experience music as background. She tunes into it, analyses it. However, that perspective changed after learning that Canadian writer Madeleine Tien listened to Glenn Gould playing Bach's Goldberg variations on repeat to block out the noise of the cafe where she wrote, Do not say we have nothing. Morrison was subsequently listening to music by Vaughan Williams when an idea about a character in her next novel formed. I put the same music on through headphones and wrote about that character. I felt the music helped me move beyond the doubting mind and more easily into an intuitive state. It helped, she says, that it was classical music and familiar. Like Hannah Kent and Niall Williams, she played the music on repeat to keep the thread of the idea while she wrote. While Morrison was writing Music and Freedom, engaging with music encouraged her in creating her work. Even playing certain pieces on the piano helped me shape the story and convey different points. Like Alice Murray, the woman at the heart of Music and Freedom, for Zoe Morrison, music makes you feel. Edward Said's description of how music can anchor the convergences of memory and intellectual history helps explain what Pryor and Morrison have experienced. Said registers how a set of disparate things coming together consolidate and support each other as he listens to a performance of Variations in D minor by Brahms. He remembers things he'd not consciously retained and associations coalesce in his mind because of the music. An earlier recording of the music, a film score, Later, when he plays the music himself, a past teacher's voice and gestures come back to him. Philip Ball provides an explanation of the neural relay occurring here. The brain hears music as a signal and starts to pay attention. 
The cerebellum's movement coordinator identifies the pulse and rhythm, and our grey matter communicates with the amygdala, the emotional centre of the brain, to produce a response. We call on the hippocampus to supply memories, both of the immediate past course of the music and the more distant associations and similarities it evokes. When I began exploring whether music supports writing, it was a casual inquiry, motivated by a simple curiosity about other writers' practice. At first it was what Robert Desay describes in an interview with Creative Nonfiction magazine as a nonchalant saunter around a target, but it took me much further into writers' lives and music than I anticipated. Writers' experience of music as a source of consonance or dissonance while they write, as a conductor of literary current or circuit breaker, took me back to their books, to the music they hear, and, in a limited way, to cognitive neuroscience, a new field for me. I reread their books and paid more attention to the tempo, the rhythm, the cadence, the mood and tone in their writing. I looked again at the harmony, the grace and the emotional shading in their work to see if I could discern whether, for those who do have music playing while they write, their writing had taken on some of the music, just as an apple nudging a branch takes some of the branch onto its skin. Whether or not they do have music playing while they write, I couldn't see any differences. Their work, in all its diversity, has its own music, and this probably explains why they all feature on my bookshelves. A biased sample, the scientists would say. What's clear, though, is that where music is an accompaniment to writing, it can block out the external world. It can create a state conducive to imaginative thought, and more, to imagined worlds. Haruki Murakami writes in Absolutely on Music, his illuminating conversations with conductor Seiji Hozawa, that to create something where there was nothing requires deep individual concentration. Music, for some writers, can be the arterial link to this concentration, whether it's creating a work of fiction or non-fiction. More than sonic wallpaper, for some writers music can be a companion, a muse, an assurer deflecting doubt. It can be an agent of meaning, a conveyor of shape and colour, a cue for memories, reflection and insight. Philip Ball told me it would take brain imaging while writing and hearing music to find out just how this happens. I'm happy to leave this as a mystery and to remember to give way to the conversations going on in my head and encourage them to make the connections my conscious mind sometimes finds elusive. Lucy Callaghan is a Melbourne-based writer and editor. This piece was originally published by The Monthly in February of 2013. The music for today's show is I Was That Book, taken from Other Joe's album Alien Haze, released last year on JPEG Artifacts. You can find more music by Other Joe on their SoundCloud and at the JPEG Artifacts Bandcamp.
Links will be in the episode description. I'd like to thank the readers who contributed to today's show, and they are Will McFarlane, James Gales, Justin Cantrell, Isabel White, Alex Clayton, Julian Huynh, Fiona Hardy, Claude Robinson-Watts, and, of course, Lizzie Callaghan. For a quiet moment, we'll return soon for another round of regular episodes. Until then, stay well, stay safe, and take care. I'm Nico Callaghan, and thanks for listening to For a Quiet Moment. <laughs>